You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, and to this morning you can see what we're looking at. So Jeff had the privilege of being able to just say, take my word on this one last night when he said, open your Bibles, uh, and you couldn't see what he was, what he had, was reading. Um, but this morning you guys can keep me accountable because it's right there in the text. And I'm going to read for us the um, Christmas story. If you have already done this this morning, then this is another opportunity for you to hear it and be blessed by it. So Luke chapter 2. That was a joke, by the way, Jeff. You faithfully handle the word all the time. I figure maybe that's a bit harsh to just throw you under the bus like that. I'm glad to be a part of a church that exposits the scriptures. And I think we do that well here. So let's read Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read the Christmas story. I'll read it for you. And then I just want to share with you six things that I think we see in the text from the manger or about the manger. The manger is a picture of a few things this morning. And so I want to share those things with you, and uh, once I get, uh, there's six of them, so I'm up front with you. If I, say, if I go more than six, you guys feel free to leave, um, because at that point, you know, I've gone off the rails and passed my notes, and uh, we also want to get you guys uh, out of here and be able to enjoy the rest of your time with family, although, as you can see, it's going to be a nice ride home in the snow, so that should have given you enough time to get to Luke 2. Is that good? We're good? Okay, let's read it. Luke chapter 2, starting verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, King David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of the eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of the Lord this morning. I just want you maybe to think of a, for those of you that are parents or certainly those that are aunts and uncles who have nieces and nephews, I want you to think of that time when your first 
child, your firstborn, or your first niece or nephew was born into the world and came into the world. Or maybe it's a grandchild for some of us, whatever it is, that firstborn. And you know what that scene is like. As a parent, you certainly do. If you have had any children, you know what that firstborn scene is like. When you find out that you are going to be um, having a baby, you're excited, right? And, this, and now we celebrate that in so many different ways. There's many different gender reveals and baby reveals, and we get very excited. We spend a lot of money. We put a lot of resources into celebrating our children. There's nothing wrong with that. Those are good things. They're worthy to be celebrated, I think. And uh, certainly family gets excited about it. You get excited about it when we're in the hospital, depending on who you are as a in-law or as a daughter. You may or may not have your family in there. For our case with Lane, we had my family waiting in the waiting room. And so there's this excitement about, we don't know, we haven't told anybody um, what is coming as far as a boy or a girl. And so when we got, uh, when Lane was born, at least, I got to go out to my family, see them all and say, it's a baby boy. It's a, it was the firstborn in our family, and uh, so it was exciting. It was a great time. The look on their faces, the excitement. Can we come in? Can we hold him? You know, can we FaceTime family that's not there, right? There's all this anticipation, this excitement around it, and uh, certainly I think even with the second and third, they get the same shake, but maybe not quite as much as the first. I don't know if that was like in your family or not, but by the time you have two, three, four, it's just like, you know, family stays home, but they're, wait- <laughs> but they're waiting for the call, maybe, or whatever the case is. But I, I think there's still, there's something, this anticipation about that firstborn child, right? And the anticipation that comes with it. And I think we want to think about that uh, contrast in light of what we read in the Scripture uh, this morning in Luke chapter 2, in Luke's account of the Gospel, and, or his account of Jesus coming. Because it's quite different. His birth was a lowly birth. There was not balloons. There was not family. There was not uh, very much celebration amongst everybody else around. People weren't coming. Our family wasn't coming to celebrate with them. And so it's easy for us to celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and then forget the circumstances that really surrounded His birth, the lowliness of it, the humility of the birth of Jesus Christ. And the circumstances around His birth, they're so basic, they're so humble, that it's easy for us to forget them. It's easier for us to forget and forget to appreciate what it is that Jesus did for us when he came, lowly in a manger. And so there's six things this morning that I want us to see from the manger. The first one is that the manger is ordinary. Some of these come right from the text. Some of them do not have verse references, but they, I believe, are seen in the text. And so verse 7 is the first thing we see, that the manger is ordinary. Verse 7 says, And she gave birth to, the, to her first newborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, it's not ordinary in the sense that all the babies in Bethlehem were being born in mangers. That was not normal. But it was ordinary in the sense that it wasn't drawing the kind of attention that you would have thought it was going to draw. Because Jesus the King was special, and yet his birth ritual doesn't really equate to quite what he was coming to do. There was nothing really special about the arrival of this King. And so God at this time was silent, right, for 400 years at least, and his people, were, they were looking. They were looking for him to come. They were looking for a Savior. They were looking for a King, a Messiah, somebody specifically, somebody who was going to free them from maybe the Roman Empire and the Roman rule over them. They were certainly had that in mind as, they, as a Messiah coming and as a King, as a rescuer. You think if that is who is coming, then you're going to have a new kingdom where you're free from the oppression of the one you're currently a part of. So you're going to be rescued and delivered. And God had a much different rescue and a much different delivery in mind when He sent His Son, Jesus Christ. 
much different from what his people would have expected. There's nothing spectacular about the way that God chose to enter the world, and yet he did. In John 1.14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? The word God became flesh and dwelt among us. God came down in the most ordinary of means by being born the same way that all human beings are born, um, by being born. And there was no party, there was no gathering, there's no celebration. This birth was not nationally televised. And the first visitors to come and meet baby Jesus were dirty shepherds, not family, not mom and dad, not aunts and uncles, but dirty shepherds out of the field that had received a, a uh, vision from the angels. And the angels came and spoke to them. No baby shower for this baby. Judgmental looks, judgmental glances, certainly, to Mary and Joseph, because she was married with a child before, or she was, sorry, she was with child before being married. She was not celebrated. Her baby was not celebrated. The birth was ordinary, the birth of Jesus. And to the world, it was not special. And we know that this is the way that Jesus lived, because in Isaiah 53, it says of Jesus, he had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Both the life and the birth of Jesus was ordinary. And Isaiah was prophesying that the coming suffering servant was going to come in the lowliest of conditions and wear none of the usual emblems of royalty, the purple robes and the garments of royalty, but he was going to come and lay in a manger. And this made Jesus' true identity visible only to those who had the discerning eye of faith. And so the manger was an ordinary thing. There was nothing special about it. The second thing I think we see in verse 11, 12, and 16, 17 is that the manger was a sign. It was a sign to the shepherds. And I think maybe we could argue to Mary as well as we walk through this passage. The angels shared some remarkable news as we read that story with the shepherds, right? They were the first ones to receive this news. And it says in verse 11, For unto you born this day in the city of David a Savior. And your mind's got to think of a Savior, someone who's coming to save us. That's what a Savior does, right? And then Christ the Messiah, Christ the Lord, God coming. So this is remarkable news that the shepherds are receiving. And what do they say in the angels in verse 12? And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby, what? Wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. Now the swaddling clothes was not the sign. All probably the babies of Bethlehem were wrapped in swaddling clothes. And we know what the swaddling is like. And for those of us that have done it, we sometimes give up on it pretty quickly, depending on how mobile your children are. Uh, I know some of our boys did swaddle for a bit and others didn't, but when you swaddle, you wrap them up so that they can't move, right? Their arms are, you kind of like mummify them almost, and uh, then they can't do stuff, they can't scratch themselves and all that fun stuff. And um, so swaddling clothes, this was not the sign that, the, that they were going to find the shepherds. It was, in fact, the manger instead, right? The manger was the sign. As you go out and look for the Savior, the Christ, the Lord, you're going to find him in a manger, maybe a stone manger, maybe a wooden manger. We have a lot of different pictures of what that looked like. But can you imagine how scandalous that would have sounded to the shepherds? I mean, they're already probably have some of the dirtiest jobs or would have the dirtiest job caring for sheep. And they're probably thinking, sorry, come again, angels. We're going to find this king, this Messiah, this Christ in a manger where the animals feed. That's where we're going to find this Messiah. Are you serious? Right? They're, maybe they're second-guessing it. A Savior coming to save the people from their sins is going to be born into a manger. 
Christ the Messiah who came to fulfill all of the Old Testament and many, many prophecies is going to be born in a manger. Something that the Old Testament prophesied 400 years ago. The manger was a sign that the king of the world had come and he was laying in it. Nowhere in the world are you going to find a king that enters like that. Nowhere. It's a, it goes against all of our understanding of how a king should enter the world and how a king would choose to enter the world. It just doesn't happen that way. And yet in the manger, you find the king of kings, the king, God in human flesh. And so the shepherds, they go out into the city. They know, okay, I know where I'm going. We're going straight to the stables and the barns and the caves where the animals stay. We don't need to check the inns because why would a manger be in an inn? So we know where we're going already. They almost were given a clue as far as to where to look makes it easier for them maybe to find the manger. But in verse 16 and 17, we read that they do find the manger. And it says that when they went with haste, they found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in a manger. That's where Jesus was to be found as the angels had told them. And so this sign was true to the shepherds, certainly. The manger was a sign, a sign that the king had come. The third thing I think we see is that the manger was planned. It was planned by God for all, from all of eternity. With a simple reading of the Christmas story, it's very easy to feel like when you read that, that this was kind of a random luck for Mary, a random stroke of misfortune maybe for Mary and Joseph, although she was bearing the king and became pregnant without actually having any relations with Joseph. There was no room in the inn, it reads, in the beginning of our passage, in verse 7 actually. And therefore Jesus was born in a stable and laid in a manger. And this was something that God had planned for centuries. Centuries of time. 700 years God had planned this. In Micah 5 verse 2 it says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, we are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Micah prophesies that Jesus is going to be born, the king's going to be born in Bethlehem 700 years before he's born in Bethlehem. That, and so God has 700 years to kind of set this prophecy up if we look at his sovereignty like that. And so 700 years to arrange for Jesus to be in the right place at the right time and in the right location in the right way. See, God could have used anybody. He could have used anybody in Bethlehem that was already living there, maybe not a Mary and a Joseph, but two other people, another couple. He could have used them, another virgin in Bethlehem, and yet he chose Mary and Joseph who lived where? Nazareth, which was miles and miles away from Bethlehem. And so he chose two different people that didn't live in Bethlehem, and how is he going to get, how's God going to get those people to Bethlehem then? Because he's got to get them to Bethlehem because he chose somebody else. Well, God uses, he doesn't use family, I should say. He doesn't use um, whatever circumstances, health issues, whatever that may be, to get this couple to Bethlehem from Nazareth. God uses instead what? The decrees of a king, right? Herod. And not just any king. Herod's a corrupt king. Herod has lots of death in his family because he has this complex where he wants to be in control. And so many people that are in his family have had died because of his hunger for power. So Herod's this corrupt person. He calls a census, and God uses that to bring 
Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, right? And then they're there in location. And he also uses that to fill the in so that Jesus can be born in a stable instead. And the question that begs at this point is who determines history? Who gets to decide what history looks like? Is it the decrees of Caesar? Is it the, the, the decrees of the kings? Is it the, the, the decrees of our prime minister? The, one who, the ones who make the laws that govern our land? Is it those people that order human history, that determine human history? God used the decree of a corrupt king to bring about exactly what he had planned all along. And if God did that for his son, Jesus Christ, then he does the same for us now. And the, rema- the, the manger, rather, is a reminder of God's sovereignty, God's control in all things. He uses all things for his good purposes, and we can be encouraged by that this morning. We can be encouraged by this picture that the manger leaves for us. I want you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah 46, and we'll read a passage there this morning. Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. You can follow along as I read them for you. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, your transgressors. You transgressors, sorry. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Call a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God declares all things from the beginning to the end. God accomplishes all of his purposes. God declares how everything is going to turn out before it even happens. And God declares all all of the natural events and all of the human events, all of the ones that we experience and live. And God's purposes are always accomplished. That's encouraging. In verse 10, I will accomplish all my purposes. God accomplishes all the things that he wants to do. And he did that with the manger. We see that as a picture of God's sovereignty. Things are not out of control. Things were not out of control for Mary and Joseph. Jesus was laying in the exact spot, place, where God wanted him to be in a manger. And the same is a reality for us in our life right now. God is in control, and we are exactly where God has placed us and wants us to be. And God is going to use the things in our lives for His great glory. And that brings us into the second, or fourth point, I should say. The manger portrays suffering. Mary's situation was tough. We've kind of talked a little bit about it with the picture of celebrating the birth of Jesus. But Mary's situation was quite tough when we really read through it. And how do you think, maybe try and put yourself in Mary's shoes as I describe some of the things that she's thinking of going through. And I know for guys this is a bit harder because you're not a female who is with child and having to walk many miles. But try to sympathize with Mary in this. She was pregnant, not just any random pregnancy, but she was pregnant before she was married. That's significant. She traveled many miles, right? She was tired getting to Bethlehem from Nazareth, 
Nowhere to stay when she gets there. Joseph and Mary don't have any friends. Nobody to call and say, hey, could you reserve a spot for us in the inn? We're on our way. Nothing like that. Maybe because nobody wanted to associate with them for uh, a reason. Shamed by everybody, by family, by people that, she, that knew she was pregnant, right? Because that would be a very shameful thing to be pregnant before you're married. No one there to help give birth to Mary and Joseph. No place for the baby to stay, to be born for the newborn baby. Only the place of common livestock for her baby. Can you imagine having to, to birth a baby there and place your baby there in a manger? Because there's nowhere else to put him. The whole situation, wretched. Scandalous. Nobody, none of us would choose that. And it begs the question, was she hesitant to put Jesus in that manger? Was she scared for his safety? Did she feel safe? Did they have to shoo animals away that were coming to try and eat? Or I don't know what it looked like. We don't know for sure. Did seeing the manger highlight for her the desperation of her situation? Baby's born. Where are we going to place him? This is the only spot where the animals eat. This is all we have. Do you think at that point that she gets back and looks over the rest of what God has brought her through and says, man, this is what's going on. Is this really what God had planned for his son? Because she knew who he was. The angels had came and said that you're going to carry the Messiah, right? So she knew who Jesus was. Even if nobody else necessarily believed her, she knew the son of God was in, was in her and that was the son of God. And so she washed her sleeping baby. Did she wonder, is this really what God has planned? Have you ever asked that question? Is this really what God has planned? Have you been there with Mary? Where you felt like, is this really God's perfect will for my life? Through this mess and all this stuff that's going on. And then in verse 16 and 17, we read, The shepherds show up. They find the baby in a manger. They begin to tell Mary everything that happened. The angels that had come and that said that there's going to be a sign for them. The baby in a manger was that confirmation then for Mary all of a sudden, right? This low, humble birth of her son, God, and then all of a sudden these shepherds come? Is this confirmation? Was this the sign for Mary that all she was going through was all a part of God's plan all along? God was still with her and God was still using her. Was that confirmation of that? All her suffering, all her questions of why me, why this way, is this really it? And this confirmation from the shepherds coming and saying what they said to her. How many of us want a sign? How many of us want confirmation that what we're going through, that where we are in life, whatever that is, is where God wants you to be? Have you ever asked that question? Is this really God's will for me? Is this really what God wants for me? I'm sure we have in desperate times. Confirmation to you and me is usually, is usually when things are going well, right? We see that as confirmation. If things are going well, if I choose to step out and do this and it works out for me, confirmation, good. I should have done that, right? That was good. And when it's not, when it's messy, when it's ugly, when things aren't the way I want them to be, we typically see that as, ooh, I don't know if that's really what God wants. Maybe I should make a change here until we find, you know, what it is. And we kind of look for confirmation in the outcome of what we are choosing to do. And in this case, that is not how God works. And that's not the case in God's kingdom. Sometimes confirmation is the exact opposite of what you're hoping for. Sometimes it's things are actually going to get harder before they get easy. Or maybe they won't get easy at all and it will just be a little bit harder. 
Maybe God's using those hard places of suffering where everything seems to be falling apart. Maybe he's using those for his great glory and for our greatest good. Maybe where God has you and where he had Mary is exactly where he wants you to be so that he can work in your life to glorify himself the greatest and to make him look beautiful as he is. So the manger is a picture of suffering, but it's a reminder that God is always there with us through the suffering, and He's always using and working the suffering. No one's suffering is easy. It's messy. It's painful. But God is most glorified through it all. And so the manger highlights the way God uses our deepest pain, our humiliation, the things that we wish were different, the despised and the lowly, to bring about for Him the greatest glory. And God's kingdom is really an upside-down kingdom. The fifth thing we see then this morning is that the manger is, is a display of humility. It's a display of humility. It's the most humblest of births for a king, as we've talked about. The manger is where the humble emptying of Jesus Christ starts. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2, if you would, and we'll consider some verses there. We've also read one in our liturgy this morning. The road to Calvary is a downhill road. Think of when you first learned to ride a bike or when you first taught your child how to ride a bike. You chose a spot that had even a, just the slightest hill, not too much, because if you do that and you let go, it's mayhem, right? And they're going to crash and burn and skin their knees and never get on a bike again. So you've got to be careful, but the road is downhill, certainly. That's easier. It helps you, right? Uh, it's an easy way to learn how to ride a bike. But it's not, and for the case of us learning to ride a bike, we choose that because that makes things easier, right, to, to learn how to ride a bike going downhill. Jesus didn't choose to be born in the manger because it was going to make things easier. The road to Calvary is downhill because it takes Jesus lower. It doesn't make things easier for him. It takes Jesus lower. And you're thinking, how could he get lower than being born in a manger? Jesus Christ's life, it started low and it went even lower. Read for with me at Philippians 2, 5, and 8. You know these verses fairly well, maybe. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, this was Jesus before he came to earth, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' life was a life of service and a life of sacrifice. As Jeff and I were talking on Friday, he was reminding me of one example that we have of this, which pales in comparison to this example. But if, it, if you've ever seen that move, or the TV show uh, about Undercover Boss, you have a picture of this. You know, what does it look like for somebody who's high up to come down low? And the Undercover Boss, they do it because they want to find, what, is my, what do my employees think of me, right? They want to know that. That's one of the things they want to know. And also, what is, how does it run? How does my company even run with some of the lowest jobs that we have in our company? So maybe you've seen that before, and that's a pales in comparison picture of what Jesus Christ did when he came, draw, leaving the, the things that he had being God, the thing of being God, did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, became human, became the likeness of man. Jesus always served. He served when nobody else did, right? He washed the feet of the disciples, and nobody else would, and Jesus gets down, and he wa- washes their feet, 
right? And then Peter comes and wants to be fully washed. If you want to be great, serve. Mark chapter 10 says this, But it shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, God, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to be great, serve. Serve with your life. Jesus didn't die the death of a martyr, a person who is killed for their religious beliefs or for other beliefs. He didn't die the death of a martyr. He willingly laid down his life for the sins of the world. He came with redemption in mind for the punishment of our sin, and he died and took that on willingly, laying down his life for those that would acknowledge themselves as sinners and repent and believe in him. And too often these days, we want a cheap cross. We want to be able to follow Jesus and serve him and love him and have it not actually cost us all that much, right? And we read Philippians 2, and we can't, we can't get that. That doesn't make sense doesn't work. We want life to be relatively easy, favorable, because we follow God. We, saw, we love Him. We serve Him. But Jesus' cross was not cheap. It cost Him His life. So the question is, why should ours be? Why should ours be cheap? Why should the cross that we bear in following Him and serving God and loving Him and serving others, why should that be cheap? Why should that cost us nothing if it costs our Savior His life? As our Savior, Messiah, Lord, this is how God reigns. From the beginning, He was God in heaven. He's born in a manger. He comes down, and then He's crucified on a cross. His, his birth is just the start of the humbling of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this humble birth conveys an amazing message to you and me. The transcendent God, He condescended to be with us and to save us. And our final point then this morning. The manger was glorious. In verse 12 and 14, you see that in Luke chapter uh, 2. Right on the heels of the amazing announcement of a Savior, Christ, a Lord, we have these verses in verse 13 and 14. Read them or follow along with me as I do. 11 and 12, the angels come. They say to the shepherds, this is, what, this is who's coming. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Right after the angels say, Hey, there's going to be a king coming, born in a manger, all song and praise breaks loose. And you can't, that's, in, that's incredible. Why? After that announcement, you wouldn't expect that. Glory to God. The Savior has come in a manger. Glory to God. God is here. The Lord is here. Christ is here. The Messiah is here. What a God that He would spend His privilege on us and not on Himself. We can't, therefore, I, we, we cannot keep our privilege for ourselves. We must use it for others and gladly lay aside whatever it is and pay whatever price is necessary because Jesus Christ did that for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to give generously. And this is what he says when he says give generously. But this is applicable to us in our lives in general. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Philippians 2, Jesus Christ was God, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. God came down to you and me in all the mess, and he did it. And through his poverty, 
He has made us rich. He has made us righteous. He has redeemed us. He has given us eternal life. If we would place our faith in Him as a sacrifice for our sins, our riches are eternal rewards because of His sacrifice. And it begs the question that Jeff asked earlier in two we- or a week ago, how can we not help but worship Him? Romans chapter 12. How can I not help but worship a God that would do that for me? That would do that much for me? How can I not help it? We know we don't deserve it. We know we can never repay it, what's been done for us. How can we not help but worship Him? The manger is glorious. What a Savior. What a God. And as we conclude, I want to read for you Luke chapter 2, verse 10, and then we'll pray as the praise team comes up. Luke 2, verse 10 says, Fear not, for behold, I bring the good news of great joy. I bring you good news of great joy. The birth of the Savior is not just joyful and exciting and moderate joy. It's great joy. It's great joy. It's a joy that's worth celebrating every day. And it's great that we get to be here this morning to celebrate it at Christmas time on the day where we celebrate our Savior's birth. Every time that we get together is a good time as God's redeemed to celebrate what He's done for us. Let's pray this morning. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to be here together, God, and to celebrate on the day that we usually celebrate your birthday of your Son and our Savior. We thank you that we can be here doing that, and it's, special, it's a special time to do that this morning, to think of the manger and the picture that it is to us of suffering, of your sovereignty over our lives, God, of the ordinariness of your birth, God, and yet the humility of our Savior, God. We are so grateful for the sacrifice of your Son on our behalf, God. We celebrate it. We, we just pray that you would help us to see the great joy that is in it, God, and not just on Christmas morning, but every single day as we think about it and as we recount the blessing it is to know you as our Savior and to have our sins covered every single day. God, we are so glad for that promise, for that Son that was sent to us, God, and we just ask that you would minister to us this this day as we celebrate it, God, and, and help us to celebrate it well and to be joyful. May it change us as we think on it, as we reflect on it, and just worship you because of it. God, thank you for your great love for us. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.